they were all watching. It was my older sister doing CPR for 25 minutes and my granddad and my dad just on their knees begging for my mom to wake up and my older brother holding them and praying. Hi, welcome to the Death of My, the podcast. Before we get started, today's episode is sponsored by Newsly. For the first time in the history of the internet, the web becomes listenable. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. Browse and listen to articles from topics such as entertainment, sports, and business. Stop scrolling and start listening. They have podcasts as well. Explore trending podcasts from over 40 countries. Our podcast, The Death of My, is on there too. Download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me or from the link in the description and use promo code DEATH2021 and receive a one-month free Newsly premium. Unlimited listening, unlimited skips, ads-free audio. That's Newsly, N-E-W-S-L-Y dot M-E. Use promo code DEATH2021 for one month free Newsly premium. Hi, it's your dad. Just calling to say hi. Check in up and see how you're doing. I hope all is well. Everything's pretty much the same here. I'm doing okay. I love you. If you wouldn't mind sharing just a little bit about who you are, where you live, what do you do, all the goods. Um, my name's Laura. I uh, grew up in Orange County, California, and then spent my younger years there, moved to Seattle. My parents are musicians. My dad got a job for Yamaha up there, and or actually a competitor, Young Chang. So he was building and designing pianos up there. My mother taught piano lessons, and we just lived outside Seattle, which was great. I spent majority of my childhood going to punk rock shows and every every weekend was a show if not in seattle portland so very musically inspired i love music and and then spent the next 10 years in hawaii where i went to brigham young university byu hawaii and then graduated stayed out there and then came back to southern california where i've raised my three children i've got a seven-year-old um almost four-year-old and a two-year-old and my husband is a chef and he's had two very successful restaurants here which he recently stepped away during COVID and is opening another restaurant here in Encinitas where we live and um, while I stay home with the kids I try to help him a little bit with that kind of just doing any operational stuff that I can do emails whatever for him we for pretty much to survive during COVID, we did these really cool takeout dinners and um, private events. People would have us come into their home and cook privately for them for these dinners. And um, I would help him do that because I met my husband actually waitressing, serving tables at one of his restaurants. He was my chef. I didn't know that. Yeah. So we fell in love. He swept me off my feet. <laughs> I love and, it. Uh, yeah, now he's opening his very own restaurant. It's it's crazy to me because he's been cooking for almost twenty five years, and he's opened up thirteen restaurants in northern and um, North San Diego. So this to be finally be his very own, which is exciting. So I kind of start all these off with the same question, and that is, who died? It was my mother. 
Yeah, she died 10 years ago, um, last May, this May. So May 17th, 2011, so 10 years. Would you mind kind of taking us back to May 10 years ago and kind of where were you at? What happened? How did you find out? Just kind of all little details. Yeah, so um, can I describe my mother a little bit before I tell the story? I would love that. Yeah, so my mother's from England. She's from Birmingham, England, which is the largest city outside of London. And it's um, actually was the first industrial city in the world. They basically just they had these huge canals even more more so than Italy that carried waterways that would carry and import things down to London but in the but there in the industrial Re revolution if you've ever seen Peaky Blinders that's Birmingham England you know it was it was a tough city you know and it's um you had people just working in hard facilities long hours and it was grueling and my mom kind of grew up you know, generationally behind all that. It was a very tough life for her. And to get out of it, she became a musician and she was studying piano eight hours a day. Well, probably more than that, 10 hours a day ever since she was four and then began playing classically, you know, at a concert level at a very young age. And then she was, um, she did an interview at the Royal Academy of London, which is the number one music school in the world. You've had the greats of Elton John's gone there, Adele, um, Amy Winehouse, Ellie Golden, Sam Smith. I mean, some of the best singers in the world have come out of this school. Yeah. So my mother auditioned actually singing Ave Maria, which is a Chopin song. And um, she, so she went to the Royal Academy of London for voice. Her uh, minor was piano. And um, she was very dedicated to her craft. That was kind of, that was her and her purpose. And, um, but she had this deep desire because she was part of um, a church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is the Mormon religion. And it was founded in America. So she really wanted to get to America and go to Utah and go to Brigham Young University for some reason, I think, just kind of find out more about what is, what did she believe in the, the culture behind it. Mm -hmm. So she moved to America in her twenties and um, she met my father who was, um, working at a piano shop and they, she was teaching piano lessons and <laughs> they fell in love. And um, she continued to kind of, she didn't get to go the route that she had wanted where, she, you know, probably had been like a concert pianist or voice or taught at like a higher level. She became a mom and she had four children very quickly. So I'm an identical twin. And then I have an older brother, three years older than me. And then I have an older sister, six years older than me. So. She, um, my dad was the one actually traveling to Japan, Korea, China for Yamaha, the biggest piano company in the world at that time, designing, building pianos for some crazy, insane art musicians. Mm -hmm. So, um, she kind of had to put her dream on hold. And, um, I think she got a little wrapped up in that. And I can, we can talk a little bit about her maybe later on, but that's kind of just kind of giving you a little preemptive why she died the way she did so she suffered from very bad depression she um and I think partly just because leaving home leaving in leaving England and and she actually died a British citizen she never became an American citizen and that was something that was so important to her to always be a British citizen she was very proud of that but um she had this homesickness that I felt my entire life watching her you know so 
Um, I think that just grew and grew and grew until she couldn't take it anymore. So um, it's been 10 years. She, I was in Hawaii at the time going to school, actually graduated school. I was working um, and I was just trying to kind of actually figure out my career. And um, I was 21 at the time. My mom died when I was 21. And so I, um, living with my boyfriend at the time, which he was not happy about because she was like in our church growing up Mormon, you don't live with just about <laughs> your boyfriend before you get married. And, and I remember that was the last conversation. Mother's day was on, it was on a Sunday. And that was the last time I talked to her on mother's day. And it was like, are you going to marry this man? Like you really shouldn't be living with him outside of marriage. <laughs> I remember like, don't give me this lecture, mom. Like really you're like the first one to talk like we like you want to start <laughs> going down this road we can but mm-hmm. I'd rather just have a pleasant conversation on Mother's Day but it really wasn't a pleasant conversation because I felt very criticized <laughs> and I and I knew myself what I was doing was wrong I just needed to figure it out myself yeah and um so that was the last conversation I had with her and I think that Mother's Day was the 15th she died on the 17th so six months prior to her death, I had come home to visit her. And my mother, like I said, had battled depression her entire life. And um, she was bipolar, schizophrenic, and PTSD. She had, um, you know, she'd been in two car accidents. So in those car accidents, she had got hooked on opiates. And so she had been battling with intense opiates for like, 15 years. I mean, I think my mom was using drugs since I was like five Mm -hmm. and, um, everything from when I was, she was even pregnant with me. She was getting Demerol shots once a week in the ER, which is banned. Like we don't, you would never give a pregnant woman Demerol now. Mm -hmm. It's a very heavy narcotic, but she was going once a week for that for migraines. And then the Demerol wasn't enough. So she moved to something called Stadol, which is a nasal drug, which then was so highly addictive. It was like three times more powerful than morphine, five times more addictive than heroin. And that got ripped off the market. The FDA banned it. So she was like stuck in a hard spot because she was so heavily addicted to this drug, this miracle drug that doctors were like gave to her because she no longer had to go into the ER every week for a Demerol shot for these migraines. They said, just take two puffs of this nasal drug and your migraines gone. And it, and it really worked. It was great. But then FDA takes it off. So she goes, crap, what am I doing? So she gets hooked oxycotton. Mm-hmm. It didn't help that she had had like a couple of car accident too. So she was kind of suffering in that physical pain. Yeah. But it was just a combination of suffering and addiction. And then from there, the last few months of her life, I think she moved on towards uh, fentanyl. So, um, when I came home six months prior to her death, she was actually getting sober again. And cause she knew she didn't want to be on these drugs, but she was just like, you know, in her head, it was, well, the doctors are prescribing for me. It can't be that bad. And, um, she was in chronic pain, but I just kind of told her, I was like, look, mom, like this amount of Oxycontin they're prescribing you, you will die. It's not it. It's when. And, um, I think she kind of was like, like, yeah, she actually handed me the bottle of 90 Oxycontin and said, (laughs) here, take it. And I was like, all right, I think she's serious. She doesn't want to take these anymore. And I, I, I I took it, took it with, all right, I might've dumped it. I don't know what I did with it, but I didn't want her taking it. Yeah. And, um, she, 
for my for those next few months, I thought she was still so sober. Um, my granddad came from England to come visit her, and that was a trigger for her because she missed him so much. And I, he told her, you know, he would call her Bab. He said, Bab, I got to go back to England to help out with your brother. She had one brother and we need, and I, I've got to go. And um, I think my mom really felt like he was going to stay here and that yeah. she'd have her father back and at least have a piece of her here in the United States. And she knew it wasn't realistic to drag her children all over to England. And she tried every year she would take them over there, but would eventually have to come home because my the work for my dad was always going to be here. And um, so this thought of her father leaving just completely triggered her. So she went on a bender. She, you know, I think she had been close to eight months um, sober, my dad said, like not touch narcotics. And she just went out and she got her Oxycontin, fentanyl, whatever. And mind, she was also taking other drugs for her uh, bipolar and um, I'm not in depression. So it was a combination. So she ultimately she overdosed. So I get a call like three o'clock in the morning in Hawaii and it's my brother and my brother was just very serious. And he said, you know, Hey, you need to get on a plane right now. And I said, why? And he's like, well, I need you to, I just need you to get on a plane. I was like, no, tell me why I'm getting on a plane. He's like, it's mom. Well, my mom had done these heroics before she, I mean, I, I remember being as young as five and walking into a bathroom with my mom slit her wrist. She was constantly throwing her in these throws of just, I want to kill myself. And she was very open about it. I grew up my entire life watching a mother in bed. She never got out of bed. And um, so it wasn't, I wasn't kind, I wasn't really surprised in my head. I actually thought, oh, she actually, it actually worked this time was my thought. Yeah. And um, I, I was curious, are we just, are we going to run into the hospital again where she's, you know, she's this desperate cry for help. And, I, and we're all going to come to her side and have to be like, mom, get sober again, because she had been to some of the best detox centers in the world. Actually, one of the, the detox centers she went to, Kurt Cobain went to mm. in Seattle. And, you know, these are thousands of dollars of renowned doctors. And she checked herself out after a week. So I don't think the intention of ever being sober was really in her head. Right. She enjoyed the suffering is my, my feelings on it. Um, so this is the debate we, we have amongst my family because we all have our own opinions of it, which is fine. Um, but they believe, like um, some of my family members believe that it was an accidental overdose. I think it was very intentional and it was suicide. And my reasoning behind that was just because she took 90 Oxycontin in three days. You don't take 90 Oxycontin in three days on accident. Mm. And um, I remember hearing her down on Mother's Day and just knowing like something, something was upsetting her. She didn't want to be, she didn't want to sit in it. And it was like, that was her way of saying, all right, dad, you're not going to stay. You're going to leave me again. You're going to abandon me. Fine. I'm done. I don't want to wake up. So um, I got the call, came in on immediately on a red eye and rushed to the hospital. So I didn't get the full, like, story of what happened because I wasn't living there at the time, but my siblings were our three siblings that were living there. And so the story of what they told me was she had gone up to bed. They had heard her moving around because she'd do this quite a bit on opiates, stay up till two, three, four in the morning, just cleaning the house or packing, you know, rummaging through her, 
her closet and fixing things. So they heard her up there walking back and forth. Well, my, my brother said he got a feeling about 1 a.m. to go check on her in the room. And she was passed out on the floor um, right next to her vanity. And my, my brother said he felt her, she was still warm, but there was no heartbeat. Well, that, this is the sad part. He, said he didn't know how to do resuscitation. And so my, my older sister did. She was a lifeguard for many years. So he woke her up and my older sister performed CPR, CPR on her for 25 minutes before the paramedics could get there. And I think that was quite traumatizing for my sister because she was just, she was, she was just trying to really, she wanted to save my mother, but I think she was just like, she felt, she felt the brunt of it because she, um, you know, she was there, like they were all watching. That was my older sister doing CPR for 25 minutes and my granddad and my dad just on their knees begging for my mom to wake up and my older brother holding them and praying. And when the paramedics rolled up, it's funny because with overdose, I've, I've talked to a lot of firefighters and, um, paramedics and I've actually OD'd myself when I was 19 and um they can be very calloused they can be very just um no bedside manner it's kind of like all right um we can count this one off as dead but I think the fact that these paramedics saw that my sister had been doing resuscitation for 25 minutes they were like all right we're gonna keep going so they worked on it for 45 more minutes Mm. and they finally got a heartbeat so because I got a heartbeat, they were able to bring her right into the hospital. So that was a blessing in itself because then I could actually give me time to get out of a red eye and get to a hospital versus going, showing up at a morgue. And so I get to the hospital and she's on the ventilators and that, that wasn't something I was prepared for. Like if you, I don't know if you, you could, I, I had to explain to someone that's, killed himself on an overdose. It's a very ugly sight. It's, mm. you know, it's, um, she was so inflamed. She was so swollen. Um, it was, it was not something pretty. And then to see the tubes down her throat and then the machines breathing for her. Yeah. And I think my brother, my brother grabbed me and he said, you know, she can still hear you, you know, go, go and talk to her. And so I went and talked to her and I said, mom, I'm here. I'm sorry. I haven't seen you. I had, I think I hadn't seen her for, well, all right. I'd seen her six months before. And I, I think the first thing I said to her is mom, I'm so disappointed in you. Mm. I don't know why I said that, but <laughs> I was, I was really disappointed because she had looked me in the eye and said, I will never take one of these pills again. Yeah. She promised me. And, um, I said that and I said, I really hope you make out of this mom so we can have another conversation about this and that you're serious this time and you really do get sober. And uh, so we sat there the next three days in that hospital, really hoping that she was going to come out of it. And um, the doctor comes out, the head of neurology, and he's just like, look, I looked at your mom's scans, her brain scans. And it was how matter of fact he was about this was kind of disgusting. He said, look, there's no difference between brain dead and having a cardiac arrest. It's the same thing. Your mom's dead. There are no brain waves. Her body is breathing. Her heart is beating, but she is dead. He's like, I would make your peace now. And so 
literally we, we were like sitting there in this waiting room. He says this, and then this nurse discharge nurse comes in and she goes, all right. So any, any of her body parts you'd like to donate. <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking, Oh my God. Like I just, we just, we thought we are, uh, we were going to get her mom back. She was going to wake up yeah. and that maybe it would be enough for her to just be like, Oh my God. Like I need to really like get sober. And that, that fairy tale ending was not what happened. No, I mean, I remember being down to go see my dad, like he fell, hit his head down at the hospital. And like, I get there, my mom was already there. And they were like filling out the paperwork for if you because he was an organ donor, you know, what I mean, like, he was still breathing with all the tubes, same exact thing. But it's like, he's, they already know that he's not going to make it or they're not going to make it. And like, I just, I don't understand how I mean, it makes sense why this happens. But there has to be another way where it's like, to not I know they care because they're people but like to them it's like okay next transaction take the body you know yes. what I mean like do all this stuff and like you're in the worst state of your entire mind like the family that has to make these decisions and it sucks you know my my brother had to be that for he us was, my older brother he's three years older than me and he was the one that did the, all of the funeral planning the casket the headstone everything because we could the rest of us were in shambles and I mean, I'm just, I'm glad you guys had someone like that, you know, that your brother took it because it sucks. It's the worst thing in the whole world. And, and he stepped up to the plate. So that's awesome. I mean, I'm curious. I, I mean, I have a million questions, but <laughs> I guess what was your relationship like with your family post all that happening? We haven't been in a room together since she died. None of us. It's too traumatic to talk about. But the thing is, I've done so much work in the last 10 years that I have such empathy for my, my, older, my older brother and sister. And I, I don't, it's actually the first time I've cried about my mom in a long time because thinking about my older sister resuscitating or my older, I was so cruel to my older sister growing up. She was so different from me. Yeah. And um I, I just couldn't relate to her. And, and now getting, having some foresight, right. I understand and empathize with her that she truly did love my mom, even though she could be so cruel as a teenager. And, and I just like, I felt like she was like the, the cause of all of our problems, <laughs> but, you know, I see that she really loved my mom and um, that she tried, she really tried to keep my mom alive. And I, I'm grateful that she was the reason that I could even see my mom in a hospital and not in a casket. Yeah. Because I was able to have some turn. I was able to walk in, tell my mom I'm disappointed in you. Now, if I would have walked into a morgue, I wouldn't have been saying I'm disappointed in you. Right. <laughs> I, I needed to say that. I needed to tell my mom, like, you know, you really, you really made me upset. Like, you let me down. You've really let me down. Yeah. And that was part of the grieving process for me, right? Is admitting I was upset with her and then forgiving her. But the forgiving part obviously came many years later. What well, what was that like though? Like the next couple years, couple months, couple years with you yourself, your grieving process? So the children all separate. My dad is buried in this depression for the next year and a half and like can't even get out of it. He's like, 
I remember coming over to his house and it was just like this show hoarders. My mom kept a meticulous, immaculate. It was like someone on meth. That's how I can explain it. Explain yeah. it. Everything was clean and spotless and organized. And I come home and there was trash stacked to the ceiling. Mm. My McDonald's everywhere. Like we met, like I, he literally was just getting out of bed and going to work the year and a half after that. My parents were married for 36 years. Mm. She died. Two days after Mother's Day and 10 days before her birth, her 53rd birthday. No, sorry, 52nd birthday. Mm. And so he was so buried in his depression. And I came home and I remember thinking, this sounds cruel, but I said, I get you lost your wife, but we left, we lost our mom and you're still a father. You still need to be a parent and you haven't fucking checked on me one time in 18 months. Yeah. And I'm coming home, cleaning your damn house so you can sell it and make ends meet. And I'm the one that's having to go through all my dead mom's clothes and go through all of her things. And there's no, there's no type of, he wasn't trying to connect. He wasn't trying to empathize with my twin and I, you know, we were 22 years old who lost our mom and a, a very pivotal time in your life where you're deciding like you've graduated college and you're, you're making big decisions. And as a female, it's very pivotal because you're like, one, I, I was in love with someone, but I wasn't sure if I was supposed to marry him. I was, I was uh, grappling with the thought of my religion and also if I should have children with this person. So these were all big decisions. I didn't want to talk to my dad about because those are the conversations you have with your mother. Right. Well, my mother wasn't there. And so I was very, my, the anger I had after her death was very much directed towards my father. Mm. And so then coming home and seeing him in this state and condition, it didn't make me feel sorry for him. It just made me feel more angry. And um, that was frustrating. And then my brother, he, I, I couldn't stand seeing my brother who's so intelligent and he was a musician himself, you know, be around in that kind of situation. So I said, you need to come out to Hawaii and, and come live with me. My twin sister at the time was married. So she, her husband was deployed. He was a Navy or special forces. He was deployed in Iraq. So I said, you come live with me too in Hawaii. <laughs> so my brother and sister live with me in Hawaii. I was just trying to give them a little bit of paradise, right? Like you can kind of forget your woes right now because this place is freaking beautiful. I'm like, we could just start a new life right now and focus on bonding. My older sister, she had a son who was six and that was hard because the six-year-old was very attached to my mother, mm. grandma, but they stayed back with my dad and he slowly picked up the pieces. I kind of actually funny story, set him up an online dating profile and pretended I was him for three months <laughs> and, I, and, and, and texted him and said, dad, like, you know, there's some chicks that really want to bang you. <laughs> it was like kind of like what <laughs> why would you do this yeah yeah because you're 52 and you're a musician and you're attractive like you need to get out there like mom's not these you're like you gotta move on <laughs> and um he he kind of so from there he he further went on some dating profiles and met his now wife that been married for like i think eight years and she's great and she really helped pick up the pieces for my dad and um the crazy thing is my mom's debt put us a hundred thousand dollars in debt. You don't think about that when someone ODs and they go in a hospital with no medical insurance, put my dad in a hundred thousand dollars of debt. He had to file for bankruptcy. These are things you don't think about. Right. 
And it was just, that was just so damaging in itself as well. Um, so his, his uh, wife, she helped him so much and get the house ready, go through my mom's things nicely and pack and, kill, and kept them for us, um, you know, in special places so that we could, have, when the timing was right, because after, I'm, I'm sure you felt like, how long was it until you went through your dad's things after he died? Oh, it was very soon after he was living in this home. It was in this home. So it was probably like, oh, my, my mom probably went the next day. And then I was probably there like a couple days after. Yeah, it's hard because I feel like that you're in denial for so long, right? That they died. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I like, I get what you're saying. Cause I remember like, you know what? Maybe I didn't actually, no, I did go. I'm trying to like figure it out. There was a lot of, of bad things that happened following my dad's death, like a lot of crazy money and creepy people in a, in a bunch of like, uh, like, I don't really know if my dad's death was an accident, like a lot of that stuff, yeah. right? Where I'm just, there's a lot of stuff that came with it. But I remember like going at some point and like grabbing stuff, I think, unless I'm making that up. But then I remember there's bags in my house for probably months and months and then I finally went through it maybe yeah maybe months later and then you know got rid of the stuff I know I'm not going to keep but kept the stuff that like I wanted to keep yada yada and 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 that also attached to like his his voicemails I knew I had and his uh like pictures I couldn't look at them you know what I mean like I just it took a long time it's funny. You kept the voicemails like I did too. And then I got a new phone, iPhone updated and lost all of them. Oh no. <laughs> yes. Oh, that was man. a bummer. Did Especially, anyone else have any? I got it. You know, that's a good question because so in 10 years, the only people that can talk about my mom's death is yeah. my sister, my twin and my dad and I, the three of us, but my older brother and older sister, we have not spoke about it in 10 years. So I'm sure they have stuff that I would love to have, um, especially because, you know, my mother was a brilliant musician and sang beautifully, but there are no recordings of her that I can find, which I'm so frustrated about. She kept no journals. I can't find any letters from her. Um, that, and that, that was hard. Cause you wanted, you wanted a positive piece of your mother to hold on to and show, especially now that I have three children, I would love to be able to show my husband who's never met her and my children, like, look how beautiful my, your grandma sang. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't have those, but maybe they do. And, and what that I was, that's kind of what I was hoping this podcast would allow me to do is just if they listen to it, give me an opportunity to like bridge the gap and say, let's all discuss how we've been feeling the last 10 years. Of course. I, I that I realized I mean I've done you know a lot of these and and just talking to people like at like literally around the world in all these countries and it's all the same thing right no one knows how to talk about it no one knows what to do and then you know some families get closer together and some really fall apart around death and it's just like how can we fix this you know what I mean like how can we just like talk about this and it helps me and I know it helps people that I talk to and it's just like this is like an important conversation that isn't happening enough. And so, you know, I really do hope that like people can like your family and others, but just, you know, like talk about it. Just I, 
I, I agree with you. And I, I think the, the, what's allowed me to even see that it's possible is this term I learned in therapy after my mom differentiation. So it's like, I can have this, this belief and perception that my mother was this person and she died this way. And my three siblings can have very different ideas and that's fine. My truth isn't any more true than theirs or false. We each have truth. Yeah. And so seeing that, 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 that's just my truth. That's my perception, but it doesn't make any, any less real. Yeah. And so if we could collectively, I believe we could collectively sit in a room and I could hear my brother's opinion of what he feels like happened and what kind of person my mom is and, and, and listen and hear him. I just, I don't know if my, if my older siblings are there yet. Yeah. Do you have a favorite memory you have with your mom? Yeah, I do. When, um, before she started using drugs, she, I was five years old and I remember she woke me up one morning. We were living in these apartments in, um, uh, Orange County. And, uh, she said, there's baby ducks in the pool. Come swim with baby ducks. It was really early. We got in this pool and she walked us in and she, there was these baby ducks and she got in with us. Like my, my mom didn't do a lot of activities with us. She wasn't like, she wasn't the kind of mom to take you to the park or the beach or anything, but she actually got in the pool and she pretended to be a mama duck. And we were the baby ducks and with, the, <laughs> with these real baby ducks and we were swimming around with her. Hmm. And it was like, I just remember being like so attached to her at that time and thinking like, I really love my mom. Yeah. But that's the hard thing about addiction, right? Is it, um, especially opiates. When you look somebody in the eye, there's this, um, I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody on opiates, but it's almost like this numbness and um, distance behind them. There's nothing there. There's a blanket over themselves or something, right? There was a blanket over my mom's soul. Yeah. And I saw that for the next 25 years. There was no getting into her. She was like, my mom lived behind those bars of suffering her and and entire adulthood my entire life mm. and that was very hard as a child because you take it very personally why doesn't my mother love me why am I not enough and you when it comes to things like you know there was very pivotal times in my life where I was molested and sexually abused and um a lot of pain and I when I would come to my mother to talk about it she was sleeping or she was drugged out you know drugged up and I and I couldn't get a conscious moment with her and there might have been two days a month that she was sober and feeling good but she I you know you didn't want to break it to her you didn't want to give her the bad news like oh well mom you've been on a bender and I, I really wanted to talk to you you just wanted to enjoy those like fleeting moments yeah I yeah I mean there's so such a rabbit hole we can go down but I'm trying to not do that I I understand there's like there's this part right did you so I'm assuming that also meant that you had pretty free range to do whatever you want at a young age oh I was a yeah yeah latchkey kid yeah you just go do whatever you want I dated I dated a musician who you know at the time was signed to a pretty you know decent sized record and he was traveling all over the United States and at 16 I just decided I was gonna just be a groupie start traveling in his in his band and you know 
started doing things that was like, I, w- I shouldn't have been doing, definitely shouldn't have been doing. I don't know how the hell my dad let me do it. And I, you know, my mom obviously wasn't there. There was a period in time where, you know, she was living, my dad had to take a job down in Southern California again. We're still in Washington. And I, I, I was smart enough because I knew my only way of survival was to get in college quick. So when I was 16, I had the opportunity to test into college. So I started taking college courses at 16 and I got the hell out of high school. So at 16, I had a full-time job. I was going taking college courses and my mom decided she was going to go live with my dad part-time in Southern California, but we still had this house we owned in Washington. And my, my mom was like, basically said, all right, can you help me pay the mortgage? Can you help me with my car bill? Like, you know, her car. And I was like, are you kidding me? I remember calling my dad and being like, dad, the power got shut off. The utilities got shut off. Like I'm here, I'm 16. I don't have groceries. Like mom's with you. Like what's going on? Mm. And so I had to grow up very fast. Yeah. And um, were you doing all this with your twin? Yeah. You know, and I, but I think her and I really, then that's another thing you'll learn about trauma pain is that you go you you process it differently and you um separate and we became very separated during those teenage years I like I said I had this boyfriend in this band that I thought I was in love with she was you know connected with her friends and so we it was like we were living in two different worlds and the older brother was three years older he actually went to serve a mission for the Mormon church and then I had an older sister that was had had a child that she was really focused on so it was like, we couldn't be living more separate at that time. Do you, how do you feel now? Cause oh, one thing that has kind of switched in my, my goal for this podcast is like when I, when I started it, I was very, it was still so fresh and so new that like there, I, all my questions were very much geared towards like, what do I do now? But now that it's like a little over two years in and you're 10 years in, I, I kind of see it from a little different perspective, which is awesome. Yeah. Right? Like growth. And it's just like, how, how do you feel like now in your, in your grief journey, like 10 years later, but also like as a mom, right? So do you see like de- did her death affect the way you think you're like raising your kids now and like the way you want to navigate and be a mom? Like, do you see yourself in her? Like what are, you know, if we could tackle that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I, of course I am. I, so the, the couple years after my mother's death, I went headstrong into a career. I started working for Apple computers and I was a, um, basically a headhunter and I got so addicted to the success because that was me using my anger as something productive. Well, the emotions that you learn through your grief, this anger, it's very volatile. It doesn't, you can't really have good source of judgment or rationality. There's no rationality when you're, when you're operating out of anger. I mean, it's going to get you places because it's going to give you the motivation, but you're going to burn out and you're going to make bad decisions that there's going to be bad consequences. So that's eventually what happened. I was so, so angry after my mother's death. I actually started having these seizures and uh, later come out, I went, I couldn't figure out why I kept having so many of these grand mal seizures, which kept me from driving. It kept me out of work. I lost my job. And um, I found out it was from PTSD. Well, the PTSD was the, the post-traumatic stress was the loss of my mother. Yes. But the trauma of the years of suffering underneath her, her drug abuse, because when she was on drugs, she was a very violent person. 
and she wasn't always she wasn't also she was very physically violent to us but she was very cruel and verbally abusive too and I didn't get I didn't really start thinking and coping about that until after her death because I was so hyper vigilant my whole life you know I, got, I graduated college when I was 19 years old from one of the best schools in the nation so I just was go 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 and her death was just more of a catalyst to be like all right I'm proving something of myself I'm going to be I'm not going to be what everybody else you know because most people I met that grew up with these kinds of moms were like soliciting themselves you know they were you know in this trail of bad marriages and bad relationships and I wasn't or using drugs I wasn't going to be that so I felt like I beat the odds in that respect so then I, I find this this therapist who is like a godsend I'm like 24 25 years old I'm like I keep having these seizures every neurologist tells me I can't be on medication because they're PTSD they're from PTSD um I basically just need to do yoga she goes, all right, what they're talking about is you need to start tapping into that consciousness. So with the help of this therapist in the next five years, I really dive deep. I mean, she worked on shaman, but she also had Western medicine belief too. So she was like a, the best of both worlds. She, she could do, give me a clinical approach, but then she could also give me, you know, all the things that I needed to hear from like Carl Jung or um, another great philosopher. Like, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Gabor Monte. He's one of the pioneers behind trauma and suffering. Hmm. Well, these philosophers, they really talk about the soul behind all this suffering and why it is we suffer. And so sitting with her those next five years and getting into what this is that actually the, my mom's death was a silver lining. It allowed me to connect with my soul that I had been ignoring for so many years you know that's that inner self that you that that still small voice that you hear but you don't always resonate with it because you're frustrated or angry mm -hmm. it was that voice and I think that's what kept coming back into my life with all these different um, experiences I had had but now it was really there it was me alone and my suffering and this voice saying all right are you ready to listen and um, I got I got to know that person very very well it was that that inner self that really taught me like these experiences have come to you for a reason because they're giving you perspective. And it's in so, and it's one of the, my favorite quotes by um, the singer from um, I'm forgetting who, um, who this is now. I'm sorry, but um, he speaks. He says, "In suffering, it you find truth. It's mm -hmm. in suffering you found truth. Find truth." And um, that it's so true because at your lowest low, when you, when you really start listening to that inner voice, you start finding out like, okay, why it is, why is it I am here on this earth? And if we are all given the same, the same opportunity to have this human experience, why do some leave sooner than others? And um, that's when I started just diving deeply into what were my goals and what were my identity and, um, and it was in that suffering, I realized the reason I was having these seizures is it was truly taking a toll on your physical, your physical body because pain and suffering, it lives in your muscles, deep down into your tissues in your, in like your connections, your nerves, everything. And eventually your body can't take it anymore.
Mm. I mean, it's said that suffering even leads to dementia, to Alzheimer's, like real mental disorders and Parkinson's even. And I refuse to be that. I was like, I'm not going to lose this memory. I'm not going to continue suffering and letting, letting it stop me from living a happy life that I deserve. Because I think my motivation then at that time was I'm not going to be my mom. I'm not going to be depressed my whole life. I'm going to, I'm going to find my happiness and I'm going to live it to its true self. And so with the help of this therapist, I did that. I'm seizure three. I've been seizure free for five years Ooh. and I have, um, I have, yes, I found a lot of enlightenment, but I think more than anything, I found a lot of peace with my mom's death that I couldn't accept before. Um, I, I've seen several mediums. Uh, my therapist being a medium herself too. She, it's funny, one of our last sessions, she brought my mom into the room and we actually had a conversation and I, it took me many years to even get to that point. Yeah. Because my mom, not to get so woo woo, had visited me on countless experiences for the last 10 years. I've talked to my mom and she's come and see me. It's like, like, or I could see her so clearly, like she's standing right next to me. And um, she was always so angry. So I couldn't, I'd always have to ask her to leave. And she started scaring my children. <laughs> like she just wasn't this presence that I wanted in my home anymore. Yeah. And so I remember telling my therapist, okay, I really, I went to a medium. She still won't go away. And she still keeps coming back. And she's still really angry. My therapist is like, well, she's angry because you haven't forgiven her. All right. What is it that I need to forgive her for? And what I needed to forgive her for that I found was that um, this suffering she had, this prison, she really truly was a prisoner. And that's what I think, I hope the world starts understanding more about mental illness. Depression is very real, especially when it's chemical. She didn't have the means to produce serotonin or this chemical need to be happy as much as she tried medicating, therapy, working out, eating right, she was still always depressed. Mm. And I, I think she was tired of being a prisoner. And I, I watched it so clearly for so many years, these shackles attached to her. This is like one of the last things I'll share with you. It's crazy. It's like, when I went back to that house that we'd spent the last 20 years in with my mom, my that my now new stepmom had cleaned up and like gotten all really nice I walked back into this house and there was so much light I had never seen light in my house <laughs> it was like coming like the sunshine coming through the windows coming through the kitchen coming through the upstairs and I remember thinking we were buried in that darkness our entire life Her leaving and her going and moving on to the next life was an opportunity for us to get out of that. Mm -hmm. And so I think now if she was alive, I worry, I don't think she would have ever gotten sober in this lifetime. I know she would have never got sober. And I would have been the daughter that had to say, mom, you can't come see your grandkids. No, I'm not going to have you drive your grandkids to the park. I don't trust you driving the kids to the park. Yeah. And these are conversations I know I couldn't have had with my mother. And it would, that abuse would have happened for the next 30 years of my life, probably. And so that in is a bit as it's a silver lining. But so I forgave her and understood, look, these shackles you could not take off. You could not get sober in this lifetime. 
I understand that and I forgive you for that. Yeah. And it was when I forgave her that I remember it so clearly. It was like two years ago. So like eight years in this huge shift. I don't know if you felt like a gravitational like force where you were mm-hmm. like, it's just like this energy, just like com- this vibration completely takes over you. And you just like, it's so strong within, but I felt this shift. And then the immediate thing I saw was that she had moved on. She was not stuck to this realm anymore. She had found her peace and she had was on the other side of the veil. And what I felt so, what I, like, I, I saw this vision. She was walking and she saw her mom. She saw her dad. She saw her brother. She saw her grandma that she loved so much. And these were all people welcoming her. And the best part of it was she was clean. She was, she was not stuck to this world of physical pain anymore. She wasn't suffering anymore. And that's what I've always, as a child, you see a mom that won't get out of bed. You just say like, I don't want you to suffer anymore. I I want you to just, I want you to be a mom. She didn't have the ability to be a mom. And um, so when I, when I think about my children, my, my husband says like, you're an overachiever because literally in one day <laughs> I go to the beach, I go to the park, then I go to the swimming pool. Then I'm like, all right, we're going to go on a nature walk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like, I feed my kids the healthiest meals you can think of because any way I can nourish my children, I'm like, because I wasn't nourished as a child, because yeah. I was so ignored as a child. Because my mom didn't even take us outside of the apartment to see sunlight or to the park or to meet with friends. I'm like, I'm going to do that for my kids. I'm going to be active with my kids every damn day until I'm exhausted. And I'm not going to complain about it because we're experiencing these adventures together. Yeah. That's all remember forever. Yeah. And I'm telling you, if you meet my seven-year-old, this guy, this kid is incredible. He is the (laughs) most enlightened soul I have ever met. And this is a child that has been seeing my mom and having conversations with her since he was 18 months old. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like <laughs> he's always talked to me about my mom and I'm like, yes, I know grandma's there. <laughs> he would always tell me when he'd see her, he saw her in the specific dress that she would wear all the time. I'm like, yeah, that's grandma. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> and he, and he's just like for my, my reminder every day when I want to feel depressed, like I can't because this kid, like he'll run five miles with me. He will do jujitsu with me. He'll hit, pa- I, I, I do Muay Thai. He hits pads with me. Like this kid just loves just doing anything that I enjoy. He enjoys. Yeah. That's so special. Well, you met my boys. You, you yeah. met all my kids. I believe yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, my final question for you is if someone has um, recently lost their mom, what is something that you would want to tell them? I think, um, I definitely think this denial part is it's necessary part of the grief but don't sit in it too long. Mm. Don't, don't, don't be a, a victim of that suffering too long because it's, it's, it's only going to cause 
more frustration and pain down the road for you. And if you can get, if you can, if you can sit with yourself in that suffering and that skin and really connect with your inner self, that soul that's so desperately for you, for you to, to listen to them, then you'll actually get some clarity. And it's, and it's that, when I say that connection with your soul, I'm talking about depth, this, this purpose and, and, and that we have inside of us that some there's a reason why we're here connect with that and and I and I actually feel sorry for people that haven't lost anyone close to them sometimes because when you lose someone close to you you're forced right into that depth you're forced to sit with yourself and for those that haven't sat with themselves they're trying to because everybody wants to connect with themselves right Mm -hmm. they're all trying to get there to, um, but they're having to go these paths. Like I, I've met someone that's done Kundalini for 10 years. It's one of the most like progressive forms of yoga and breath work. And they still haven't met their higher self. They probably won't for 25 years. And then I've, and I've met with bishops of, you know, the Mormon church who have seen, you know, prolific vision, they say, you know, and they haven't met themselves. Yeah. So use that grief and that sadness to really connect with your soul and the person that you came to have this human experience with and connect with it and figure it is and, and use and the instance that you, the reason you lost your mom and this is here is because you have, it, it's, it's the turning point for you. It's mm-hmm. only going to get better. It will. Once you come out of this sadness and grief, you will find your truth. You mm-hmm. have to keep moving and you have to sit in it. It will be hard. And I, and I, and I think my last thing is, don't sit in the anger too long because the anger is where you're going to not have much rationalization and you will not, you'll make poor choices. Move to a more primary emotion like sadness and sit in that sadness. And that sadness is what's going to allow you to have clarity. It's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing, sharing about your life and your mom and everything. And I know it's going to help a lot of people. So thank you taking the time to do this i'm sorry i cried so much no i love it <laughs> i try not to be emotional but then i think about my children and i'm like i just yeah. i just <laughs> you Thank know you. it's a 